daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin is in China for a two-day visit. Chinese Defense Ministry slams U.S. arms sale to Taiwan. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has officially won a third term in office. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. The Russian Prime Minister is in China from Tuesday to Wednesday for a regular meeting between Chinese and Russian heads of government. Mikhail Mishustin's trip comes at the invitation of Chinese Premier Li Qiang. Announcing the trip earlier, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said the regular meeting between Chinese and Russian heads of government is a vital mechanism for implementing the consensus reached by the two heads of state and coordinating bilateral practical cooperation in various fields. The mechanism has been held every year since its inception in 1996. Now for more, we're joined by Dr. Wang Yiwei. He is Rang Manet Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Thank you, Professor, for joining us again. Thank you for the invitation. Now, Professor, tell us more first about this mechanism of meetings between Chinese and Russian heads of government. I mean, what's its function and how does it help to sustain the relations between the two sides? Well, uh, China-Russian relations is uh, only relations identified as the comprehensive strategic partnership for of coordination. So coordination is in the uh, international level, international foreign policy, structural issues, including the summit uh, between the two presidents regularly that meet, and also uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Minister of Defense, and also uh, the function of cooperation and the UN, UN uh, because two uh, permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. But the second meaning of coordination is about the domestic policy, uh, particularly for the uh, government government uh, regular uh, cooperation and the meeting. So since the 1996, uh, we will have the 28th round of the meetings between the two governments mm-hmm. to coordinate in the, uh, both sides of the uh, policies development, particularly energy cooperation, regional cooperation, trade, uh, investment, all kinds of different ministers. So that's a very uh, mature relations in the world. Mm. Well, then, uh, Professor, how would you comment on the current overall level of China-Russia relations? Well, we say the China-Russian relations is the model of the great power relations. That means, firstly, it's not an alliance, it's a a very equal, uh, independent foreign policy for China and Russia. And secondly, it's not a target of the third party. So China-Russian cooperation is not uh, like the U.S. uh, alliance that put the sun uh, third party as the adversary of the threat. No, uh, we are dependent. Thirdly, uh, they are not impacted by any other third uh, factor. So it's made stable, uh, mutual trust, strategic trust, and also uh, material relations. So that's the China-Russian relations. But now it's not just the government, the central government level, but also local, regional level cooperation is to be the uh, highlights of the China-Russian relations. Mm. Uh, what about regional and people-to-people exchanges between the two sides? Well, indeed, uh, next year we will celebrate uh, the uh, 75 uh, years anniversary of our diplomatic time. Also, it will be the uh, China-Russian Year of Culture. Uh, so more tourist, more cultural exchange, uh, including think tank exchange, so mm-hmm. that will be a uh, top priority. In a central government level, also uh, the different regions and the provincial levels. Mm, right. Now, uh, Professor, in your observation, what will be issues of priority du- during this round of meetings between the two sides? Well, this time, uh, the uh, Russian Prime Minister came to China. Actually, uh, is want to uh, we said the, uh, make the China and Russian cooperation before uh, 2030. There are economic uh, development uh, policies Mm-hmm. That set the priorities, so we will we will have to have the um, implemented of the uh, consensus reached between the two uh, 
the heads of the state. So that um, means more on the new energy, not just traditional energy uh, cooperation, in, including the, the, the oil and the gas, but now the new energy, uh, low carbon energy also. And also from the up and the low uh, strain of the energy supply chain and the security and safety of the uh, energy cooperation and the science and the technology cooperation, logistic cooperation to uh, guarantee of the stable of the supply chain, financial cooperation and also uh, uh, industrial, uh, new industrialization, uh, mm-hmm. digital cooperation and agricultural corporations will be the five, uh, eight uh, priorities of the economic cooperation between China and Russia. Mm. Well, Professor, Russian news agency TASS reported that, here I quote, the parties plan to discuss current issues in, develop- in the development of bilateral relations with an emphasis on practical cooperation, humanitarian and inter-regional exchanges. Um, now, Professor, why are these areas particularly important to both sides? Well, we say this, uh, the today's world is uh, uh, with a uh, dramatic change, so in uh, unseen in the past centuries. So, so many crises, uh, people say that the only certainty is uncertainty, so called uh, so called uh, humanitarian crisis in now in Gaza, mm. uh, in, in Europe, in, in many areas. So, so, China and Russia coordinate maybe in, uh, uh, humanitarian assistance and also uh, inter regional exchange. Russia put forward the Eurasia uh, you know, partnership. China also, of course, of the Belt Road Initiative. So the synergies of the strategies between the two uh, grand strategies also need to be uh, implemented in detail. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor, uh, regarding these important uh, global issues like development and security, what are the common interests between China and Russia these days? Well, China and Russia... Uh, have so many uh, common uh, concerns and common interests, uh, even uh, common grounds in dealing with, uh, for instance, in the defense of the uh, the UN-led international system order. Uh, you know, not mm-hmm. just the, the American state, so-called the rule-based international order, as the two members of the P, uh, permanent member of the UN uh, Security Council. So that's very important, and also about uh, the justice and. Uh, uh, for internationalization of uh, uh, democratization in international relations, mm-hmm. and also uh, cooperate coordinately and very closely to deal with uh, recent uh, Middle, crisis, uh, Middle East crisis, and also Ukraine crisis as well, and uh, including climate change. And uh, so, China and Russia actually they are partner for strategic partnership mm. coordination. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, Professor, uh, China and Russia are both members of uh, several important multinational uh, platforms. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, UN is one of them. Also, we have the BRICS group and also the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, Professor, can, how can the two sides better coordinate their policies so as to, you know, to defend the interest of the group that they represent? What we say, China and Russian relations is a new model of great power relations. We also are a new model of international relations, including SCO. It's a new, uh, the Shanghai spirit, mm-hmm. different with the Cold War uh, mechanism like NATO, it's different. And also, uh, BRICS is also a new mechanism, new uh, international organizations. So, China and Russia uh, coordination to make sure uh, SCO and uh, BRICS can run it well and also. Uh, to deal with the uncertainty of the world, uh, to to you know push forward, I would say that the democratization in international relations. So we hope the world will be more uh, towards uh, justice and stable and balanced relations, not uh, you know so-called uh, uh, you know unipolar world or uh, in the name of the of the West uh, with the rule-based international order. Actually, we also defend or the interests of. Uh, Developing countries. Mm. One more question, Professor, before we let you go. So, the British magazine The Economist recently ran an article saying that uh, the Russian government is actually uh, running the Russian economy dangerously hot because of the, you know, the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, what's your take on that, and how will that impact the economic and trade relations between China and Russia? Unfortunately, uh, Russia's economy is, uh, looks very good, actually. It's not like the Western, so-called, uh, after the sanctions, 
Russia's currency will collapse, uh, Russia's uh, trade will be uh, declining. Actually, Russia's economy is much better than uh, some European countries, even uh, in the British uh, economy. Mm. So the West always you know, discriminated to Russia and looks down upon to Russia. It's not, uh, uh, it's not the reality, actually. And mm. also, uh, China and Russian relations also works very well. For instance, the two presidents set the goal of to 200 billion U.S. dollars of the trade. Now, this year, we reached the, this uh, goal ahead of time. Right. So we have a loss of the huge potential of cooperation, uh, in t- including the traditional trade, like the oil gas, but also new uh, trade, like the service, like uh, in agriculture and the uh, regional corporations. Mm. And I think it's still uh, with two large countries mm. that need to trust each other. We can have many things to do. Right. Mm. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on the uh, the dialogue between the two heads of government uh, in Beijing. But thank you, Professor. That was Dr. Wang Yiwei, Zhang Bernat Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Coming up, China slams U.S. arms sale to Taiwan. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. I am Dan Wang. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Chinese Defense Ministry said Tuesday that China is strongly dissatisfied with and firmly opposes the United States arms sale to China's Taiwan region. Wu Qian, a spokesperson for China's Ministry of National Defense, made the remarks in response to the recent announcement by the U.S. regarding a 300 million U.S. dollar arms sale to Taiwan. U.S. arms sale to Taiwan has severely violated one China principle and the three China-U.S. joint communiques, especially the August 17th communique. It has seriously undermined China's sovereignty and security, posed a grave threat to the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, and sent an erroneous signal to separatist elements advocating Taiwan independence. Wu Qian said China urges the United States to halt arms sale to Taiwan, honor its commitment not to support Taiwan independence and cease interfering in China's internal affairs. Now, for more, we're joined by Liu Kuangyu. He is researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies, China, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Kuangyu. It's good to have you back on the show. Hello, this is Kuang Yu. Now, uh, media reports show that these arms are aimed at maintaining the so-called C4 capabilities of the forces in Taiwan, meaning command, control, communications, and computers. Specifically, Kuang Yu, how do they impact the stability across the Taiwan Straits? Uh, the first is to strengthen the capabilities of the Taiwan military command system and enrich its strategic and tactical roles so that to Add way to Taiwan's rejection of so-called uh, rejection of unification by force. Uh, we know that C4 capability refers to the Taiwan military's command and control system, and so on, which is the brain and uh, nerve of the Taiwan military's combat system. And its main purpose is to connect and integrate the combat situation information in Taiwan's three armed forces to build a common picture. At present, we know that the Taiwan military is using the command and control information surveillance system. Um, built by the U.S. for Taiwan during the Chen Shui-bian administration, which cost more than 50 billion new new uh, new new Taiwan dollars. Mm. Uh, so at its core are the 50 sets of the Joint Tactical Intelligence Distribution System terminals sold by the U.S. to Taiwan in 2003, which are also key equipment for NATO Link 16 military tactical data link. Taiwan recently confirmed that the U.S. intends to help it upgrade its command and control system from link 16 to link 22, mm-hmm. further strengthening its status, call, uh, its status as a major uh, non-NATO ally. So on the other hand, the U.S. arms sales, arm sale to Taiwan is to upgrade and transform the CSISR, uh, CFISR of the Taiwan military, as well as uh, to provide maintenance and tactical 
uh, services with the, with the intention of uh, significantly improving the efficiency and safety of its command and management information, uh, which can fully incorporate in air, sea, land platforms and strengthen the strategic and tactical functions of Taiwan military. This is also shows uh, the increasing emphasis on the intelligence data, the command systems, and the intention uh, to include Taiwan military as part of the U.S. military control system. Mm. Well, that certainly increases the tension across the straits. Yeah, um, of course. Now, Kuang Yu, what's the role of U.S. Congress in this recent sale? I mean, what signals does it send to separatists in Taiwan who advocate independence? But we noticed that in the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act just passed by both houses, the U.S. Congress, uh, for the needs of the U.S.-Taiwan joint operations includes a large number of institutional deepening of the joint training of Taiwan forces, uh, strengthening joint uh, interoperability and intelligence sharing, Mm -hmm. showing the same trend uh, just as this arms sale. For some time now, we can see the U.S. Congress, especially the Armed Service Committees of the, of the House of Representatives and the Senate, under the leadership of right-wing anti-China forces, have become the vanguard of accelerating arms sales to Taiwan, uh, advocating in, in armed Taiwan, and, and promoting the destruction of Taiwan to, con- to contain China, mm-hmm. and have so to a large extent formed a drag on the Biden administration's China and Taiwan-related policies. On the other hand, we can see uh, less than a month before the elections on the, on the island, the United States suddenly announced these arms sales to Taiwan. It's, uh, everyone knows its intention is to directly intervene the elections and in Taiwan and support the Lai uh, from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the U.S. has gradually made no secret of this. Mm. Well, uh, also, Kuang Yu, can you explain to us uh, what Wu Qian actually meant by saying that, you know, these arms sales violates the August 17th uh, uh, communique? What does that mean? Oh, uh, mm. we know that uh, uh, we, we know that in this uh, in this communique, uh, we, the, the Chinese side demanded uh, the U.S. that they should stop uh, arms sales to Taiwan, arms sales to Taiwan. This is stop their process of arming Taiwan. Uh, of course, this is uh, a, a direct and, and obvious violent of the of the com- commit of the U.S. commitment to Taiwan made in this communique. Mm, indeed. Now, the sales come on the heel of uh, a meeting between American Chinese leaders in San Francisco trying to stabilize relationship. I mean, what harm do they bring to the bilateral relations who were actually seeing, which were actually uh, seeing, you know, some improving signals? Yes. We know that one month ago at the US, uh, China-U.S. summit in San Francisco, uh, the Chinese side made clear is three-point position on the Taiwan question, mm. uh, the, that the U.S. Sh- should stop arms sales, uh, arms sales to Taiwan. They should support China's uh, peaceful reunification, and China will eventually be unified. Uh, we noticed that Biden uh, reiterated the five-point commitment of the Bali meeting uh, with a special emphasis on not supporting Taiwan's independence. Mm-hmm. However, only a few days later, we see the White House spokesman change this stance saying that uh, they will not give up weapons uh, to Taiwan. And U.S. Defense Secretary Austin even said that the meeting does not change direction of their actions towards Taiwan. We, so the U.S. backtracking on the Taiwan-related questions has seriously damaged the foundation of mutual trust between China and U.S. and dealt a substantial blow to, US, uh, to China-U.S. relations and disrupted the process of easing and cooperation and the mutual trust between China and the U.S. So mm. this is a very dangerous move. Right. Now, practically speaking, how does the U.S. view China, uh, view uh, Taiwan um, vis-a-vis its overall relations with China? Uh, well, mm. well, the U.S. attitude and approach of the, on this question are very contradictory. On the, on the one hand, since the 19th century, actually very early, the United States has realized the importance uh, an important uh, political and, sh- and strategic vo- value of Taiwan uh, and the Strait. And since the late Qing dynasty, it is proposed to occupy Taiwan or maintain Taiwan's 
separation from the Chinese mainland to maintain the U.S. maximum uh, maximum strategic interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after World War II, it, 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 it has always here to such a methodology to deal with China and Taiwan-related questions, and that is it has always regarded Taiwan as a, as a so-called strategic frontier, a chip and a chess piece to contain, to uh, to coerce, to con- to disrupt Chinese mainland. And the United United States regards Taiwan as a so-called unthinkable aircraft carrier, a democratic frontier, and and, and also a cheap island, uh, which reflects the complexity of this current strategy and interest on Taiwan, uh, uh, on the Taiwan Strait. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, while the United States continue to link its Taiwan policy with its uh, so-called China policy to raise its uh, uh, bargain on the Chinese uh, with the Chinese mainland, and there has been a revisionist voice. And the U.S. in recent years actually calling for a, a review of even the, the abolition of the One China policy and mm-hmm. the decoupling of the Taiwan, uh, Taiwan policy from its uh, from U.S. China policy. The essence of this voice is actually the status of Taiwan has not been settled that that sort of ideology, and it denies China's One China principle from a political uh, standpoint. It is. Uh, to internationalize the Taiwan question. Mm, well, that sounds very dangerous. But, Kuang uh, Yu, what do Taiwan leader uh, Tsai Ing-wen and the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan want from moving closer militarily to the U.S. and advocating Taiwan independence? I mean, is it really in the interest of the people uh, of Taiwan? Well, of course not. Actually, the DPP knows uh, very well that Taiwan independence is the uh, is of no good, is a dead end. And just like what Chen Shui-bian admitted before he stepped down, the uh, Taiwan independence cannot be done. It just cannot be done. And therefore, uh, they have pinned all their remaining hopes for the so-called independence on external support, mainly from the United States. Uh, the DDP believes that although the U.S. does not officially support Taiwan's independence, in terms of strategic needs and policy practice, it might be happy to see a so-called controlled Taiwan independence and to create a controlled tension uh, in the strait, so, uh, which is conducive to implementation of the Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States. And therefore, this arms sale, we can see, suffer in- internal and external difficulties of the... Uh, we can see that uh, the, the DPP, which is suffering internal and external difficulties, uh, they thanked the U.S. a thousand times, even said that this move shows that the U.S. attaches great importance to Taiwan's defense needs, and they will return in a favor and return a favor. That that means uh, uh, to, to deepen their relations with the United States, and that means that the, the DPP administration will further complement the needs of US, the U.S. in terms of military strategic interests and arms and arm purchases from the U.S., in return to the so-called support from both parties of the U.S. Mm. Well, we have uh, roughly a minute to wrap up the conversation, but uh, what is the responsible way for the U.S. to handle its relations with Taiwan? The most basic thing is to quickly, for the U.S., uh, especially its government, both its government and its Congress, uh, to return to the basic position of the three communiques between China and the U.S., stop the so uh, stop this uh, so-called the petty game of using Taiwan to control, to coerce, to consume China, and stop the big adventure of destroying China, uh, Taiwan to suppress China. And the U.S. should also be more rational in recognizing that reunification of China is not only a blessing for both sides of the strait, but also serves the fundamental interest of the general whole international community, mm-hmm. including the United States themselves. Mm, right. Well, this is uh, certainly one of the most uh, contentious issues uh, in this bilateral relationship. But uh, yeah. thank you. We appreciate your thank time you. and uh, your insights. That was Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. After the break, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has officially won a third term. You're listening to World Today. For more discussions, you can find us on the X platform at CG. TN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome. I'm Elon.
Love Ellard, Economics Professor and Member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has officially won a third term in office. Authorities announced election results, saying he won almost 90% of the votes. The presidential election had a record voter turnout. Adel al-Mahouri has more from Cairo. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has officially won his third and what should be his final term. The National Elections Authority reported a record 66.8 voter turnout, which the body said provided a great boost to the country. The presidential election was a model that made us proud. We applied the law without any violation. The world saw unprecedented popular turnout. This is a political and constitutional awareness that suits Egypt. Abdel Fattah Saeed Hussein Khalil El-Sisi, also known as Abdel Fattah El-Sisi, won 39,702,451 votes with 89.6% of the total valid vote. Runner-up Hazem Omar earned almost 2 million votes. Leftist candidate Farid Zahran came third with about 1.8 million votes and Abdel Sanad Yamama got a little over 820,000 votes. It wasn't the same margin of victory from the last election in 2018 when El-Sisi opponents only managed to secure about 3% of the total vote. But it was nevertheless significant, especially with so many people deciding to vote during a cost-of-living crisis. We did not expect that high turnout. We are currently going through some very hard times, which made us think that these external factors would push many people to refrain from voting. The people want the president's top priority to be the economy. The second issue is to protect Egypt's borders. They both need immediate intervention. This should take place with a new management and a new cabinet. Despite their hardships, the president will no doubt feel like the people are firmly behind his agenda, having seen off so many candidates with relative ease. About 4.5 million people voted for the three other candidates running in this presidential race. It is yet another record figure in these elections for the number of people voting for President Tilsisi's opponents. Adel al-Mahouri on Egypt's presidential election. Chinese President Xi Jinping has congratulated Abdel Fattah al-Sisi on his re-election as Egyptian president. Xi Jinping described China and Egypt as friends that trust each other and partners that pursue common prosperity. The Chinese president also called on the two countries to strengthen Belt and Road Cooperation, jointly safeguard the common interests of developing countries, and upgrade their partnership. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. He Wenping. She's ex-Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Dr. He, for joining us. It's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. He, how do you find the election results? I mean, is um, 89.6% uh, win a landslide victory? I mean, what has CC done right yeah, uh, this result, election result, actually, I, I'm not feel any surprise uh, for this uh, because, uh, you know, even though there are three other uh, president candidates for running this uh, president seat, but all other three, you know, even unknown to the public, uh, you know, to the people, uh, they are not a competitor at all mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, you know, the incumbent uh, president CC. So actually, even I asked around my Egyptian friends, they all come out with the same point. Mm. Uh, so this is not a surprise at all. But uh, if you see uh, what uh, seeing what uh, has CC done right, I think uh, uh, he has been doing at least the stability, uh, you know, for uh, Egypt, uh, this society. Especially after, you know, the Israel-Hamas fighting and the, during the recent months, mm. uh, people uh, strengthened their, this idea. 
you know, only the CC, you know, can, you know, get through all those planets uh, in a right way and uh, maintain this stability, you know, about the Egyptian people and the, about the Egyptian society. Otherwise, they also worry about uh, some spill over. Uh, those, uh, you know, conflicts between Hamas and Israel maybe go through into Egypt society. Mm. So I think uh, this, uh, this timing, uh, this timing also helping a lot uh, for his uh, election. Uh, this mm, right. Talking about the Egyptian economy, how has it been doing in the past few years during Sisi's first and second term? Honestly speaking, I think Sisi's uh, mm. the first term, uh, this economic situation in Egypt has been uh, better off, mm. uh, quite, quite better off than the second term. Uh, this also relates with the big background of international economic situation and all those international big events. Uh, for example, Ukraine crisis. Because the very first uh, term, uh, we saw this, uh, like uh, this COVID-19, uh, Ukraine crisis. So Egypt is reborn uh, somehow, you know, from the past, uh, those years, uh, those uh, chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since the Arabic Spring uh, took place in the 2010, you know, 10, and then uh, Egypt also gone through the first revolution, like uh, brought down the Hosni Mubarak, and then second, they caused the local people called second revolution. Uh, that is uh, like a Muslim Brotherhood. This leadership also has been brought down. Mm. So you see, uh, up and down, up and down for quite a long time. So that is why, because when your social situation is not that stable, uh, that will scare away, uh, you know, some uh, international investors. Mm. But eventually, when CC, uh, you know, uh, came to the power, and then he made a lot of efforts, like how to hold on and even destroy uh, those uh, uh, Islamic, uh, you know, ISIS, mm. and also the local, some, uh, you know, those uh, terror those forces. Uh, he named this uh, Muslim Brotherhood is the terrorist group. And uh, no matter what kind of naming, at least uh, this stability uh, back to the Egypt society. So uh, no longer a lot of uh, those, uh, uh, you know, uh, fightings or some uh, social, uh, you know, turbulence. Mm-hmm. So that's why a lot of international investors also get into Egypt. So Egypt enjoys uh, quite high uh, this uh, like uh, ranking in the investment environment. They are given by a lot of international uh, those uh, uh, companies. Uh, mm-hmm. They foresee what's going on in Africa. Egypt is always on the top, and right. they also witness a lot of a new big project has been undertaken. For example, Suez Canal uh, has been widened. Mm-hmm. Uh, now double uh, can be double transportation. The two ways, uh, this way, that way, before only one way forward. But now it's two, uh, two ways. And also the new capital city, now almost finished. Uh, now the Cairo, a lot of population, this old capital city now can be transferred, you know, uh, some uh, population and even administrative, those, uh, uh, government departments all move to the new capital city. That will, you know, come out with new uh, chances for development. Mm. And uh, also new, like a museum uh, that can further boosting the Egyptian this uh, tourist industry. Yeah, right. so quite a lot. Mm. Mm. Indeed, um, a lot has happened in, in Egypt during the first and second term of uh, Abdel Fattah Al Sisi. Now, uh, one more question, Professor. So, looking forward, uh, what do you think will be the main tasks facing Sisi, both uh, domestically and internationally? Yeah, domestically, I think uh, that's the economic situation. Because uh, uh, we just mentioned the first term uh, on the CC seems uh, quite good. But the second term, because COVID-19 and the Ukraine crisis, uh, recently this uh, Hamas-Israel conflict. So all, you know, make uh, Egypt now facing a lot of uh, challenges. Now inflation rate is very high. Uh, Egyptian pound is a little, uh, currency also, you know, devalued a lot. Internationally, yeah, you see uh, this uh, uh, conflict. Yeah, because Egypt has been the one, you know, entrance point, yeah, out and in, uh, go with this, uh, 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 you know, government. so Egypt has responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. So now they are doing peacemaking uh, job, already successful, like uh, bring the temporary humanitarian ceasefire uh, in, uh, between Israel and Gaza. That was contributing from Egypt. Right. Yeah, those uh, uh, one week long uh, humanitarian ceasefire. And now Egypt, of course, they have to and mm. also they can do more. Indeed. Back, uh, Doctor. To, to 
area. Uh, there was Dr. Ho Wenping. She is an Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news—not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. German business sentiment fell more than expected in December. A widely watched business climate index produced by the IFO Institute in Munich fell to 86.4 in December, down from 87.2 in the previous month. The IFO survey measures the health of the German industry several months before official figures. Morale was particularly low in construction. With sentiment in the sector at its lowest level since September 2005, together with a decline in the December PMI index, the findings are adding to recent evidence that German economy is likely to con- contract for the second consecutive quarter at the end of this year. Now, for more, my colleague Ding Hong earlier spoke with Mike Basting, senior lecturer with University of Southampton in the UK. First of all, why do you think we are seeing some signs that Germany, namely the eurozone's biggest economy, entered a technical recession at the end of the year? I think there's quite a few reasons. I mean, it, it's a relative thing. If you look at Southern Europe, those countries, Italy, Spain, are faring a little bit better. Potentially, the the divergence where Germany is concerned.、Uh, Probably has a lot to do with the dependence on on Russia and Russian energy and energy supply and the energy sector、uh, and greater exposure there to that global downturn as a result of the the conflict in, in, between you know, Russia and, and Ukraine and the, the wider fallouts. I think that it really has the German economy has taken a hit like no other economy. So I think that's that's possibly one of the big reasons. And then possibly tourism as well. Tourism is probably fueling growth. So it's a relative thing. Elsewhere in Europe, probably Southern Europe,、uh, again where yeah, there's, a, there's an attraction there in terms of climate、uh, that, that Germany doesn't have. So probably those two factors are the immediate sort of tactical reasons. But perhaps there are longer-term structural issues as well that are, are really、uh, sort of、uh, thwarting the German economy now. Mm. So the assessment on the current business situation falls noticeably in the energy-intensive industries, but improves slightly in the services sector. Why do you think this is the case? Well, I think as I just said, the service sector is is not totally fueled by by tourism, but tourism is a big part of the service sector、yeah. and the entertainment sector as well. And, and I think that's probably got a lot to do with it and, and other. Uh, parts of Europe, notably Southern Europe, and global global warming. So it's really an appealing uh, uh, climate you know, all year round now, particularly for Northern Europeans. It's something where Germany misses out on, but particularly North Germany. So I, I think the service sector is is probably in a better position to、uh, to, to sort of、um, counter this, this this sort of global downturn. And also, unlike the manufacturing sector, it's not dogged by Supply chain problems、um, still due to COVID, but also the, the energy supply as well. So I think supply chain problems with manufacturing um, um, are not really the, the, the case when it comes to the service sector. And again, Germany is probably losing out, very dependent on manufacturing、mm. generally, more so than some European economies.、Mm. So why do you think morale is particularly low in the construction sector? As a matter of fact, significant declines in residential constructions and new orders, along with a drastic fall in affordability, are said to be the major challenges facing the German economy right now. Why is this happening? I think there are two factors. I think confidence is low. I think the consumer confidence and therefore demand、uh, on the on the, the consumer side, demand side. Is an issue and confidence in the German economy going forward,、uh, and as I just said, supply chain issues when it comes to manufacturing generally, not just housing,、uh, are, are still 
major, major problem that's facing the world economy, and I think they're, they're a bottleneck that need sorting out. And partly because of COVID, I think those are still uh, real challenges. There's supply chain issues when it comes to construction and, and manufacturing generally, uh, and also consumer confidence on the, uh, the demand side, I think, are, are really issues that are, are painting a little bit of a negative picture at the moment. Mm. Do you think this has anything to do with, say, the monetary policy? Because on on the level of the G7, actually, we understand there is a sort of uh, collective move or action to raise interest rates, right? I think it has. Yes, obviously the the, the interest rates, and particularly in, in in the UK recently, the the Bank of England um, were widely expected to reduce. Uh, interest rate uh, base rate, but did not, and that, that did not go down very well at all. In fact, mm. the pound sunk uh, to, a, to a, a low against the dollar. Confidence again took a hit. So I think yes, I think there are inflationary pressures worldwide. Again, a, a lot to do with the, the the pandemic and sort of global slump and supply chain issues. And, and I think central banks are, are right now sort of quite understandably quite nervous about. Um, Monitoring inflationary pressures and not letting this sort of tiger out of the bag, so to speak. So, so yes, and I think that that will probably continue through uh, 2024, most definitely. Where we'll see a very cautious approach. So, I think inflationary pressures and relatively high interest rates are, are here to stay, and, and therefore any economic recovery, uh, where Germany is concerned in particular, but but other economies can only be gradual. Hmm. So, in addition, the German government is also facing a budget crisis, with a November court ruling leaving a hole of 60 billion euros in the budget. And according to this latest、uh, report by this think tank,、uh, that that is also a factor as well,、uh, leading to its、uh, pretty negative projection of the economy. So, do you see any solution to this particular impasse, and how do you think this will have an impact on the German economy,、uh, for example, over the course of next year? It's difficult to see a short-term fix. This, this is a huge hole in, in the, the German economy that, that has been highlighted again, and it, it can only lead to savings,、uh, cuts when it comes to public、uh, spending, possibly、uh, the maintenance of, of relatively high. Uh, taxes uh, and again a gradual perhaps、um, repair re- repair sort of strategy. So it, it's very very difficult、uh, to see an easy way out of this. This, this spending hole has largely、uh, the, the, the product of structural faults in the German economy. We, we see a very aging population.、Uh, we have high tax rates、uh, and quite a sluggish economy. So. It's probably going to involve a very certain amount of、uh, pain when it comes to、uh, the German consumer and German families over the next year, or, or maybe more, with, with more spending cuts and, and gradually bringing that budget back into line.、Hmm. So earlier, Mike, you mentioned that there might be some、uh, longer-term, say, structural challenges or shortcomings within the、uh, German economy. Can you? Uh, put your fingers on some of these、um, oppressing issues or shortcomings. What exactly are they? Well, I think one of the the, the key issue where Germany is concerned, it, 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 relative to other sort of competitor European economies, is the the aging population. It has the largest aging population in Europe,、uh, a growing percentage of Germans in retirement, putting huge strain on the public purse,、uh, a, a buckling pension system. That really is under tremendous strain,、uh, so I think that really underlies a lot of the problems to do with, with the German economy. In addition, many would argue that taxation levels are too high, so that that sort of chokes off investment, chokes off entrepreneurial activity and, and、uh, aspiration.、Uh, so, so high taxation,、uh, aging population,、uh, slower growth rates. Uh, and also infrastructure. When it comes to other economies, it, it, it's not it's not progressing in terms of digitalization,、uh, competitive、uh, 
uh, mm. infrastructure when it comes to roads, schools, uh, the, the, the energy sector, the over-reliance on Russia. So it's a combination of all of those. But I think if I had to put my finger on one point, it would be that aging population. It's quite difficult to, to do much about that. It's not just the aging population, but it's the declining birth rate as well, that a fewer people supporting more people in retirement. That, that really is a conundrum that uh, the Germans uh, really have to address. That was Mike Basting, senior lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. This is World Today. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So. Join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A non-human researcher has been listed for the first time as Nature Magazine's top ten most influential researchers of the year. AI-backed chatbot ChatGPT has taken this year's tally to eleven. Nature's editor-in-chief said the chatbot's addition to the list acknowledges the profound impact generative AI has on the evolution and progress of science. Now, for more, we're joined by Andy Mock. He is tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you, Andy, for joining us. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Andy,、um, first up, how's Nature Magazine's annual list of world's top ten research acknowledged? I mean, around the world. Well, I think this is certainly <clears throat> a milestone moment because, of course,、uh, this I think demonstrates a recognition、uh, that not only humans、uh, can play a important role.、Um, In research, not as a tool used by humans, but here I, of course, obviously seen as、uh, an autonomous actor with agency.、Mm, right. And the, in reality, how has ChatGPT transformed people's、uh, work and life this year? Well, honestly, I think that、um, I don't dispute that、uh, ChatGPT, other、uh, chatbots, these large language models. Have had a very important impact, but can we conclusively say that、uh, they have agency the way humans have agency?、Uh, I'm not entirely sure.、Um, but at the same time, clearly,、um, ChatGPT,、uh, others, Bard, etc., by Google,、uh, others of these、uh, chatbots have had an important. And I could even say transformative impact. So in this sense,、uh, I think this recognition is appropriate. But if not entirely factually correct、mm-hmm. today, <clears throat> excuse me, Andy.、Uh, but also, Nature Magazine also acknowledged that ChatGPT is dangerous, and there are problems of error and bias.、Uh, what's your take on that, Andy? Well, that's another very, very good question. <clears throat> So we know that、uh, generative AI、uh, can be misused.、Uh, it also can "quote unquote" hallucinate, meaning make up information, because the core of the technology is to predict the next word or the next phrase. So、uh, yes, there are、uh, dangers, there are risks,、uh, but at the same time,、uh, every technology is a double-edged sword. Um, the other thing I would add, because I don't dispute that we are on a path、uh, where people like Henry Kissinger and、uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google,、mm. uh, believe that、uh, AI will be autonomous、uh, before too long. That we look at humans; humans can do bad things <laughs> as well. So I, I'm not sure that、um, you know we should think of this as disqualifying in any sense. Just the same way. We have laws, we have norms to encourage good behavior amongst humans, and we have、uh, punishments when they uh, misbehave. Uh, at the same, I think we are seeing an emergence of a similar paradigm with、um, artificial intelligence, and especially as we move to a world of artificial general intelligence, where 
these AIs equal or surpass human intelligence and human agency. Mm, right. I mean, because of these uh, issues and concerns that you just mentioned, uh, uh, quite a few countries around the world, national governments are actually putting up legislation, legislation trying to regulate uh, AI. I mean, how's the international community doing right now in terms of that? Well, I think there's widespread recognition uh, that this is an important topic. And we also uh, see that... Um, the U.S., China, and the EU, uh, you know, are are at the forefront of organizing these efforts. I'm personally encouraged, though, that while uh, especially China and the U.S. are at the forefront of technology here, there is, I would say, almost universal recognition that uh, it's not just the technology leaders, but we really have to be inclusive, making sure other countries have a voice, uh, other types of stakeholders, NGOs, uh, other uh, people with a vested interest in these decisions uh, are also heard. So I think uh, in a somewhat optimistic way, this shows the evolution and advancement of mankind, that as we confront these new issues, uh, there's a greater emphasis on inclusivity uh, as we do our best to address these challenges. Mm, Indeed. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how these regulations will turn out uh, as we move forward. Thank you, Andy. That was Andy Mark, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin is in China for a two-day visit. Chinese Defense Ministry slams U.S. arms sale to Taiwan. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has officially won a third term in office. Well, to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now. 